0: I'm turning today to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, and verse 30. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verse 30. And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus, that is, after their mission work, and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going and they had no leisure so much as to eat. And our subject is the supreme teaching miracle. And that's what we shall mainly be looking at the feeding of the five thousand. A teaching miracle. Well all The miracles were teaching miracles. They were not only mighty, invincible demonstrations of the divinity of Christ, the fact that he was God come in the flesh, but they also showed how he was Christ, that he was the true Messiah, the prophet, priest, and king prophesied, promised through the Old Testament the great descendant of Abraham and of David, the one who would be the saviour of the world, through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. And all the features of the types were fulfilled in him. And this is demonstrated in his miracles. The miracles are so full of meaning. We do not reduce them only, only to demonstrations of his divinity. They were that, of course, first and foremost. But they were more. They were teaching miracles. And this is seen here in what is often called the supreme teaching miracle. The supreme teaching miracle because it's the only miracle in all four Gospels. The supreme teaching miracle because it has the greatest number of participants or beneficiaries of any miracle. Not one person healed, but thousands fed, 5,000 men. And elsewhere in the Gospels, we're told that didn't count the women and the children. Who knows how many? Some people guess at very large numbers, 20,000. One would think perhaps that's unlikely, but certainly 10,000 possibly. In fact, uh, this miracle hadn't been carried out by God for 15 centuries. The manna that came down from heaven to the people at the time of Moses. And the centuries passed, and now comes the Messiah. Messiah. And he feeds five to ten or however many thousand people with miraculous bread. And they were privileged to be the first recipients of such bread since the giving of the manna. So it is the supreme teaching miracle. And there you see it, even fulfills, show that Christ fulfills the great type of the giving of the manna. And he says so himself. He is the bread of God who comes down from heaven for the life of men and women. There is so much in the miracles. We do not have to go to the fanciful extremes of some of the uh, medieval uh, exegetes on these parables and invent all sorts of ideas that perhaps they depict But there are obvious features in every miracle where Christ is shown, not just he must be the Son of God, but look at him fulfilling the types and the shadows. Look at him bringing all the features that are predicted and prophesied of the Saviour of the world. There is meaning and significance in them. I heard a message once, many years ago and it was on the feeding of the 5000 and the preacher was very lively and in many interesting ways he embellished the narrative and he uh, elaborated on the narrative in the Bible but he really didn't add to it at all at the end of the day when the sermon was finished he'd only told you in a very interesting and lively and much elaborated form, he had only told you what you could read for yourself. And then at the conclusion, he prayed. And he prayed very nicely. But it wasn't all that inappropriate a prayer, I don't think. I don't wish to be critical, but he thanked God for the depths and the riches of the word. But he hadn't explored the depth and the riches of the word. He'd really only repeated the narrative. He hadn't given any of the aims or the purposes of the miracle. It's fundamental and it's obvious objectives. But that's what we have to strive to do. And it isn't difficult. And we'll be looking this morning very largely at that but I begin here with these words the apostles gathered themselves together and they told Jesus all that they had been able to do on their mission trip and he said in verse 31 which is rather curious come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while and it's curious and I shall be very brief with this for this reason He knew all things. And he knew perfectly well that they were not going to rest a while. The Lord knew perfectly well that they would take ships and they would arrive uh, just to the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. And there was a fishing village named Bethsaida, not to be confused with the much larger Bethsaida that also features in the Gospels on the other side of the lake, This was a little place called Bethsaida, or later called, Bethsaida Julian. And it was uh, a fishing village, a small place. In fact, there were not many people living in that part at all. It was fertile, it was green, Mark tells us this. He went there and the moment the ships, or ships in the plural, I think it would have been, landed, There were crowds there that had raced round the northern edge of the lake when they saw which way he was heading. And there was a vast multitude gathering, and he began to teach. So where was the rest? The rest, dear friends, was in hearing his teaching. Come and rest a while. Be refreshed after your toils, after your mission work. Well, they might have thought they were going to sit down and have a picnic somewhere and time off, but what they were going to do was to listen and to listen to the Saviour and to listen to him preaching not for half an hour or for one hour, but for the best part of the day. And that was rest and refreshment. It's a wonderful thing, the Word of God. It's the best rest. This is the day of rest. It's a day of preaching too. A day of studying, immersing ourselves in God's Word. But I just ask you to note that. Rest a while. Hear means hear the Word of God. And refresh your souls. And verse 32, they departed into a desert place, not desert in the sense of a sandy desert because there was green grass there, but desert in the sense, the literal sense, a deserted place, not much of a population, just little villages scattered around. And yet the crowds came from all the towns and the cities everywhere, Verse 33, the people saw them departing and many knew him and ran afoot thither out of all cities and out went them and came together unto him. As he landed, there was the assembling crowd. And verse 34, just before we get going on the aims and the purposes, this is a beautiful verse. And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people. And was moved with compassion. Great sympathy. The Greek uses a word which means really innermost yearning. Of inner organs yearning. Such compassion and sympathy. Because they were sheep not having a shepherd. Something there for all of us. Whether we're preaching from a pulpit or teaching in Sunday school or witnessing privately, you can't speak the gospel or speak of Christ without yearning for souls, without having a sympathy for lost souls, without having that real purpose and concern. Even the Savior was moved with compassion and that's the basis on which he worked. But the reason for the compassion, he saw them as sheep not having a shepherd. In other words, it's a way of saying they were so ignorant, and they were. They were being taught, as you well know, by their clergy, the Jewish clergy in those days, that Messiah, when he came, would be a political messiah who'd get rid of the Roman forces and make the nation prosperous, the most prosperous. They wanted a political saviour. They were so ignorant that he was coming to take away the sins of his people. He was coming to achieve what the sacrifices only depicted, to take as a substitutionary atonement the punishment of sin for all who would be saved. He was coming to be a saviour and to transform lives. They were ignorant of that. What ignorance surrounds us today? We were ignorant. Amazing how little we take in. Well, I grew up as a lad many, many years ago when the things of God were taught in many of the schools, where there was morning chapel, and we heard many, many things that would have been sound and true, and many things, no doubt, that were not so sound or true. But none of it, sound or unsound, really interested us and registered with us and pierced our hearts, so ignorant of the saving message of the gospel, and you look around and you see it everywhere. People will say to you these days, in these atheistic days, Oh, I'm an atheist. What they're saying is they just don't understand at all who God is, what He's done, what Christ has done, how He came, what He came for, our eternal needs. They're so unaware, so asleep, so ignorant. And you start by having a great longing that people should know and great sympathy and you yearn for them. And that's the basis of our work together, friends. And we learn from that 34th verse. But here on the feeding of the 5,000. Verse 35. And when the day was now far spent, the disciples came unto him and said, This is a desert place. And now the time is far past. They'll never get home while there's light. Some of them have walked for miles. They haven't eaten since breakfast. It's now approaching the evening. Send them away, verse 36, that they may go into the country round about and into the villages. There weren't any towns in that particular region. And buy themselves bread for they have nothing to eat. But it was past the hour that people sold food in the villages and assembled in the little market square or the streets to sell their produce. It was over. There was no hope at all. And so the solution of the disciples is send them away. It's getting very embarrassing. Well, even that depicts Modern Bible Christianity sometimes, send them away. The church these days that won't restart the Sunday school. Oh, the difficulties are too great. Oh, there's too much to be considered. Send the children away. And if you're Calvinists, you can hide behind grand doctrines of grace if God means to save them. He'll find some way of doing it. It isn't all down to us. Send them away. Or perhaps you and I say it during the day. Someone, the opportunity has come. We should witness to them. But we shrink from it. Oh, not that person. That person will be difficult. Send them away, Lord. And again, maybe we hide behind the doctrine of sovereign election. God will have a way of reaching him. But I'm scared of that one. I recoil from that one. These words penetrate us. Send them away. You can't ever do that. Well, that's the solution of the disciples. And here comes a great test. and are lots of tests of our faith in the Christian life. Verse 37, he answered and said unto them, Give ye them to eat. Now between the Gospels you see what they did. A little more information in each one. They uh, had to find out, well, how do we do this? And Philip was asked, according to John, he was asked directly, where shall we buy food? He came from that region. So he's the person who Christ asked. But he was testing him, testing what he'd say, proving his faith. And Philip failed the test. He said, Lord, if we had eight months' wages, 200 denarii, 200 days' pay, our King James Version translates it pennies, if we had eight months' wages, it wouldn't feed this vast crowd so we can do nothing to pass the test of faith of course Philip should have said we can do nothing Lord but you can do everything you can supply them and he didn't say that he failed the test and we fail the test time after time the test of faith when difficult circumstances arise and we momentarily go to pieces and feel sorry for ourselves and weep and complain, they are only tests of faith, dear friends. And I wonder, if the Lord hadn't been God as well as man, what he would have felt. If he had been only a man, how crushed he would have felt. Now I know I'm saying something slightly illogical but supposing he'd worked all his miracles and the disciples look at him and say nothing can be done and the Lord would be feeling inwardly well what about me? I've done so many miracles in front of you don't you think I can do it? Why aren't you looking to me? Don't you think I can help? After all you think nothing of me. The attitude of the disciples would have been crushing for the Lord had he not been divine and perfect, God and man. It's a great insult, really, that Philip and the others thought nothing can be done when Christ is with them. And he sets the belt Feeding the 5,000. Verse 38. He saith unto them, How many loaves have ye? Go and see. Five and two fishes. And you know from other Gospels that there was a lad there had the five loaves. Not loaves as we think of them. These were little barley cakes baked quite hard. Little things. Five little barley cakes and two small fishes. What's this? And verse 39, the miracle begins. He commanded the disciples to make all sit down by companies upon the green grass. Now this is an amazing miracle and there's so much to see from it. Here are the aims. Here's the message. we are going to have to race through them because if we make it in our time, there are eight aims or purposes to this miracle. The first one I've already mentioned we can be very quick with. It was a miracle to demonstrate the divinity of Christ, as they all were. It was, in this case, a creation miracle this multiplying of the bread and the fishes this is a miracle of creation how it endorses Christ as God and Messiah the one who created all things in the beginning now creates a tremendous quantity of food to feed upward of 5,000 possibly 10 possibly more thousand people he is God he creates he makes so that's the first purpose of the miracle the second purpose of the miracle is to show that he is the fulfillment of the type of the manna. he is the true bread that comes from God to feed spiritually the needs of men and women the needs of the world why this is not a human conclusion if we read John chapter 6 we read about the feeding of the 5,000 and it leads straight into I am the bread of God I am the true bread and then the Questioning and the answering about Moses and the manna. No, it wasn't Moses who gave you the true bread. It was God in heaven, and I am the true bread who comes down for the life of the world. So the Gospel of John links this miracle with the whole discussion of Christ as the bread of life so that's the second great purpose in detail it shows him to be the fulfillment of the type the great promise of God of bread which depicts the word of God the message of the gospel the salvation of souls and if we were to turn to verses in John chapter 6 then we would prove that conclusively but I go to the third purpose or aim of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Obviously, it's to increase the disciples' faith. It's specially given to build and increase their faith. How do we know that? Well, not only is it obvious, but a little later on, Christ reproves them for their hardness of heart and their lack of faith because they've forgotten the feeding of the 5,000, and also, which happened later, the feeding of the 4,000. So these miracles, both of the feeding miracles, were given to be a bulwark and a strengthener to faith. And Christ indicates that when he reproves the disciples for forgetting it. There's an application there for us. Every great answer to prayer that you've ever had was not just meant for then. That's it. I've had a wonderful answer to prayer. Forgotten. It was meant for you to store it up in your memory store, to strengthen you for the next trial, for the next difficulty, so that you've got in your mind a wonderful record as life goes by of your greatest answers to prayer. They're designed to strengthen your faith for the next trial. And that's established by the Lord in his dealing with the disciples. But the fourth aim of the miracle is to show the disciples' inability and yet instrumentality. God uses human instruments. For instance... The root of the miracle is going to be in the five barley cakes and two fishes possessed by a lad. Maybe a young teen. Who knows? Totally inadequate and insufficient to feed 20 people, let alone five to 10,000 people. But God was going to use them. He uses human instruments. The parable shows that. Yes, but what can we do? Ah, but God, by the Spirit, magnifies and multiplies the value of our efforts. He clothes them with power so that just a few loaves become many, many loaves and two fishes become many fish. Dear friends, God multiplies and amplifies our efforts, and we believe that with all our hearts. My feeble witness, faltering words, nervously said, can be made powerful to their salvation. One, then another, then two others, then four other souls. And a great wave of blessing may come through the years God multiplies our efforts by his spirit we depend upon the spirit of God and makes them fit and worthy and powerful and that's demonstrated human instrumentality but I'll come to it in even the breaking of the loaves because the disciples must have participated I'll show you this in a few minutes in the breaking of the loaves it was a divine miracle and there they are participating in it handling it the preacher's words the Sunday school teacher's words may be instrumental by the spirit we don't go along with those who say regeneration an invisible subconscious work in the soul Completed in a split second in a flash of lightning, the soul is put under an anaesthetic. Bang! Regeneration completes the work of conversion. And the person is entirely passive. That is a form of hyper-Calvinism which has become very popular in these days. It wasn't the Calvinism of Calvin or the reformers, or the Dutch reformers, who perhaps explain these things better than anybody. It wasn't the Calvinism of the English reformers or the Puritans. Yes, everything started with the work of God. Through his predestinating, electing love, he worked in the heart. But the work of regeneration made a person able to hear and willing to hear. And as he hears the gospel and the pleadings of the Sunday school teacher or the preacher, so those pleadings are instrumental. And he is consciously drawn and convinced it was the regenerating work of God opened his understanding and enabled, inclined his heart and his will to listen and to respond. But our words are instrumental. And I shall come to how it was done. Christ broke the loaves and the fishes and the disciples went on breaking them. It was his power and work, but they were participants. That's the Puritan position the position of Flavel and Goodwin and all the others who explain it so clearly. The words of the preacher are instrumental. So he must preach the gospel and he must do so persuasively and earnestly as he can. And this is one of the great aims of this parable, that God uses human instruments. It's ultimately his work. And he begins it, but conversion is a process that issues out of regeneration. It isn't all contained in an unconscious moment, in a flash. And that's widely taught nowadays, and that's one of the reasons why there's so little persuasive preaching of the gospel. Dear friends, we learn that from this teaching miracle. And then fifthly, my time is going fast. But in this miracle, we see Christ. Listen to this, friends. We see Christ as prophet, priest, and king. He is the Messiah. Look at him. Prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, first of all. Well, obviously, prophet in that the, the bread The feeding represents the word of God, and it comes from him. But in another sense, there they are on a hillside, thousands of people. And Christ says to the disciples, arrange them. Arrange the vast crowd in companies of 50, 100 and then 50. And the Greek wording is very interesting. Like plots in a garden, a word is used which describes garden plots. In other words, there's a group of 50, an aisle, another group of 50, an aisle, aisles all over the place, corridors, and neat groups of 50. That must have taken some time. What's this all about, people say? You are going to be fed say the disciples. That's not in the text. But I think it's fair to imagine, what are you doing this for? We're going to be fed. Fed? Here? There's nothing to feed us with. Jesus of Nazareth says, you're going to be fed. Sit down, orderly manner, all of you, and then we'll serve you. Nowadays, you would look down the hill expecting to see a group of trucks coming up the hill. To feed five to 10,000 people is going to take a lot of food. The supplies by now will be wending their way up the road. In those days, I suppose you'd expect a long line of carts. Where's the food coming from? How is it going to be supplied? We're all sitting, waiting here. What is this all about? He's a prophet, you see. It's, it's just like prophecy. The promise is made. We wait for its fulfillment. There seems to be no sign of the fulfillment. The time goes by. Where is it coming from? What's going to happen? And then the miracle and the promise is fulfilled. You see Christ as a prophet. You see him as a priest here. He takes the five loaves and the two fishes and it says he looks up to heaven somewhat ostentatiously. He looks up to heaven. He blesses. He thanks God for the provision and he turns to the people. Now feed them. He's a priest. He stands between God and man. He represents man to God and he represents God to man. He calls to heaven and then he, by his power, performs the miracle. Our priests never did anything like this. Our priests... Call upon God and give us nothing. He is the priest. The great high priest. And he demonstrates it in the miracle. And he's king. His bounty is distributed. The giver king to all the people. Are we being fanciful? Is it not obvious? Does it not stare out of the miracle at us? The actions of Christ, prophet, priest, and king. That's one of its aims, to establish the offices of Christ, the exclusive offices. Only Christ held all those offices. There were kings, there were priests, There were prophets, only Christ was all three, our great high priest. Today, dear friends, it's so different. Look at it, visualize it on the hillside. Plots, not of flowers, but of people, all neatly arranged, ready to be fed all quiet all expectant the food coming from one source namely Christ his disciples distributing it are you visualising it? isn't it just like church? why this teaches about preaching an order people listening to God Or the Word of God, people being taught order, just like church. Today, people are saying, we don't want it to be just like church. We all want a dance, we want clamor and hubbub, we want everybody saying something, everybody chirping up. We want all these uh, phony prophecies and all kinds of things, we want noise and action and visuals and drama the great teaching miracle shows you a congregation in orderly arrangement listening to the word of God they could all see Christ he was the centre of it all today in church the centre of it all is the word of God that's why We stick to the old tradition. So I won't criticize anybody who doesn't have this. But we stick to the old tradition of a giant pulpit Bible. This is the authority. This is the word. The word of the living God. This is the word of Christ. The big Bible wasn't invented because the preacher had poor eyesight, the big Bible signifies this is the authority, the word of God. So we always try to preach from a giant, visible, pulpit Bible. Don't look at the preacher. This is the authority. He's only a servant. He's only one of the disciples tripping round with the baskets distributing what comes really from the power and glory of Christ so that is one of the aims of this teaching miracle to show the teaching of the word of God to people who humbly hear and listen and respond they eat seventhly time is almost up now but seventhly dear friends Christ provides his servants there are fragments left over they fill twelve baskets why twelve? oh it's so obvious twelve apostles hadn't the apostles to be just been sent on a mission When they'd been told, you mustn't take a spare coat, you mustn't take a spare staff, you mustn't take money in your purse, you're not here for uh, comfort, riches, and support, you must live humbly and modestly. And they did, all of them, till their dying day, till their martyrdom. The models of pastors and preachers throughout the centuries. They lived modestly and reasonably. They didn't do it for money. They didn't amass riches. But immediately they're sent on that mission, the feeding of the 5,000, and the seventh purpose that we're listing is that it shows them God will look after the preachers. They'll live modest and humble lives, but God will provide for them. So when the multitude is fed, then there were 12 baskets of ample provision to sustain and to keep. There were probably actually more than 12 people. And i come to conclusion, really, well, with this. How was the miracle performed? Well, we're not told in any of the Gospels the details of how, But when you think about it, I always used to accept the idea that it was all Christ. He distributed everything. The disciples just carried it to the crowd. But it couldn't be when you think. I, I really am hesitant to admit this, but I tried it not multiplying loaves and fishes, but distributing them in my imagination. And I looked at the second hand on the watch and I said, I will, I will serve 20 people. In my imagination, I went to the motion. When I'd done this 20 times, I looked at my watch. Oh, the time it took. Now, my maths isn't good, but I did a calculation... And I thought, going quite fast, if Christ had personally broken the bread and the fishes for, say, 20,000 people, the serving would have taken two and a half days. Now, that couldn't be. Of course, there were more than 12 disciples. There were 12 special disciples who he especially taught and became apostles. But there were always more. Maybe there were 30 or 40 took shipping and came with him. And so when it says the disciples gave to the people, it may be more than just the 12. But the point is this. If Christ gave to the disciples, but the disciples were experiencing the multiplying of the loaves and the fishes, even as they distributed it. Assuming there might be 20 to 30 helpers, you might serve that meal in under an hour. So it suggests to my mind that there were more than Christ. He was the power. His was the source of the power. It was his miracles. But to their amazement, rather like in the time of Elijah, and the, the cruse of oil and the grain multiplied and multiplied as they broke off the bread to the ranks of people, neatly sat there, it just went on and on coming. So the disciples were participants in the distribution and the multiplication of all this food. That's what I was getting at a little earlier. Friends, time is out. There was an eighth thing I was going to tell you, and it's this. In this miracle, there is also a perfect illustration of the message of the gospel and I've many times taken this miracle just to preach to lost souls it's all there all the elements of the gospel nothing fanciful they're obvious there was a great need number one nobody had eaten since breakfast listening all day they'd walked for miles they had yet the return home The evening is approaching. There's a great need for food, for the people to be fed. The need, which is the first phase of conversion, when God deals with us and we feel our sinfulness and spiritual bankruptcy and our need of life. There's no solution in sight. The world can't help you or cheer you up. Once you know you need your sins forgiven and you need spiritual life and eternal life, there's no man-made religion can help you. You're in a barren desert place. But there is one. Number three, Christ. He can help. He came to make an atonement, to suffer and to die and to give new life and to transform people Who believe in him. And then there's the call of Christ. Come and sit down. It was like an act of faith. All those people. What are we doing this for? What are we sitting in these. Garden plots as it were. For waiting. There's no food in sight. It's like a. It depicts faith. They have to wait. In expectancy. Upon God for new life and for blessing and then the miracle everybody knew that it all started with the lads five loaves and two fishes how that depicts conversion here am I or you if you're converted just a sinner ignorant sinner with a dead soul inside me an inactive soul No spiritual experience. Not fits. Just a little hopeless, sinful, stained thing. And God causes us to be born again and gives us a living soul and a conscience and enlivens heart, mind, and will and transforms us. What he brings out of five loaves and two fishes, food for thousands. And it depicts the work of salvation starting with something of no value and enlarging it wonderfully and changing it so that it's something wonderful and massive. And everybody saw the result. And they tried to take him by force, we're told in John's Gospel, and make him a king. And when you go home converted after coming to Christ, everybody at home knows the difference and sees what God has done. Well, these are the purposes of the feeding of the 5,000. The word of God is wonderful, friends. The word of God is profound. We mustn't be fanciful and over-imaginative, but every miracle tells us far more and teaches us more than only the divinity of Christ.